Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to John 19. We'll look at verses 28 through 37. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. So why are you here right now? I mean, you could be a whole lot of other places right now, sleeping, uh, at the beach. Why are you here right now? Why come to church today? Why come any day? Why come every Sunday, like uh, a lot of you do? That's a question you might want to ask yourself on a regular basis. Why am I here? You might want to ask yourself that on a regular basis, but more importantly than asking yourself, it's a question that you need to answer for yourself. You need to answer this question for yourself on a regular basis. So I'm not saying you've got to work out all your motives and figure all that out, assess yourself, why you're here to determine why, uh, whether you're coming for good reasons or not, and sort of just work all that stuff out. We're going to struggle with bad motives, with impure motives for everything we do, including coming to church for the rest of our lives. So I'm not saying you've just got to work out all your motives. I'm saying you need to tell yourself the answer to this question. You need to ask the question, why am I here? Be somewhat aware of the reasons why you particularly have been motivated to come. But then you need to answer that question for yourself. Specifically, you need to tell yourself the biblical answer to that question. You need to tell yourself why you're here in light of God's word. The Bible doesn't hold forth the church as just some social club that we come and participate in because it's fun and what else am I doing? And this is where I see my friends. That might be some aspect of getting together as as the church, but that's not the fundamental reason why we come to the church. The Bible doesn't hold forth the church as sort of a group therapy session. We're all getting a little better here. The Bible doesn't hold forth the church as a philanthropic association. We all get together and fix what's wrong with the world. It doesn't hold forth the church as something I'm obliged to participate in participate in so I don't feel guilty. Because if I didn't show up, I'd probably feel guilty. That's not how the Bible talks about the church. Maybe those factor into your personal motives for coming to church. I don't know. But the Bible says that you come to church because it's the place of salvation. You come to church because it's the place where God meets together with us in his grace for relationship. Relationship with God and with one another. Saved by his grace. God doesn't think you need just a little help here or there, that you need to belong to some little club here or there, that you'd be okay if you just followed some good moral examples, that you, if you just try a little harder, clean up a little better, then you'd be fine. God doesn't think that. God knows that you need a relationship with him above all things and in all things. You need a relationship with him, and he wants a relationship with you, and he's provided everything necessary for that to happen in his son, Jesus Christ. So you don't just need a little help. You don't just need a little gathering every once in a while for motivation, mutual encouragement. You don't just need a little pep talk here and there on a weekly basis. You need a substitutionary sacrifice to save you for relationship with God. That's what Jesus came into the world to provide. And when he did that, he gave us to God and he gave us to one another in the church. So there's really only one answer to the question, why am I here? Why are we here? Jesus Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. That's why we're here. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we see Jesus on the cross. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> 
Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would send your spirit to help us so we might understand your word and more than just understanding it, that we might be changed by it, that it might renew us from the inside out, that you might give us new life. You might even restore our relationship with you where it's broken through your word as we receive it by faith through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray for that help in Jesus' name. Amen. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so I mentioned this in our email newsletter this week. I hope you didn't miss it. But Wednesday was uh, Independence Day. We celebrated it. Fourth of July. I'm sure lots of you got together with family and friends. Uh, on that day, Fourth of July in 1776, the Congress of the American Colonies adopted the Declaration of Independence so that they'd no longer be part of the British Empire. A sad day for BBC lovers. It's the national day of the U.S. It's the national day. It's our, it's our big holiday as a country. It's like our birthday. Uh, it's the national day. It's America Day. It's the day that we celebrate our identity as citizens of the United States of America. Our, we, we celebrate our freedom as citizens. So we have parades, and we do some grilling, and we watch some fireworks. And I'll tell you, every year in our neighborhood... After dark, it's like a war zone, uh, driving through smoke, thick smoke, with loud bangs going off next to the car that actually make you afraid. Um, people out on the streets setting fires, launching rockets. So I think it's apropos, actually. It's, it's like a war zone. The fireworks are actually meant to depict the artillery battles by which our national freedom was won. You win Wars like that with weapons. The better weapons, the more like you, likely you are to win your war. And that's, that's how it works in this world. If you want national freedom, then you need a war. You need a revolution. You need soldiers and weapons, and you need to destroy your enemy, and then you will win. They will lose. You will win. That's how it, it works in this world. And when you celebrate your hard-earned freedom on a regular basis, you commemorate 
the great battles. You commemorate the victory of, of war when you won and they lost, when you destroyed your enemy. That's how it works in this war world. That, that isn't how we commemorate our true freedom as Christians. Our true freedom is something essentially substantially different from the kind of freedom that we have as Americans, citizens. Um, our true freedom wasn't won by war, not in the conventional sense, not in the way that people would understand it. The Israelites, the Israelites learned this through their own national history. The Passover was sort of like their 4th of July. It came at the beginning. God established a new calendar based on it. He said, this is going to be for you a new beginning. This is going to be the beginning of your year, and you're going to have this uh, uh, you're going to remember this every year. So the, the Passover was like their 4th of July. It's their national day. It's like Israel Day. On that first Passover, they were set free from Egypt as a people. They were established as a people, as God's own people. And then every year they commemorated that freedom with a feast. So they grilled meat too. They had lamb roasted over a fire. But instead of just being sort of a nice excuse for a good meal, get together with your family and friends, and of course we want to eat, well, instead of just being a, a nice excuse for a good meal, it was actually the meal that depicted their deliverance. Like for us, the fireworks sort of depict our deliverance. For Israel, <clears throat> the meal itself depicted their deliverance. They hadn't been constituted as a people and gone free from Egypt, their enemies. They hadn't been saved due to a revolutionary war that was fought by soldiers with weapons in the conventional sense of war. Israel had been saved by the Passover lamb. The lamb had saved them. And they hadn't been saved by winning a war. They've actually been saved from a war that they could never win. And it was actually their war with God that they were saved from. Israel was saved from their war with God by the Passover lamb. <clears throat> we read about the Passover some in our Old Testament reading that Annie read. From Exodus 12, that whole chapter is about the Passover. Go home and, and read it. God was bringing plagues upon the land of Egypt, where the people of Israel had been long enslaved and oppressed. And he was doing that, bringing these plagues about, these miraculous uh, judgment plagues, in order to bring Israel out of Egypt and to constitute them as his own people, to make them his own people, to take them for himself and to bring them into the promised land where they would then dwell with him. And so God was about to bring one final plague. It was the worst of them all. It was the death of the firstborn. And he warned them all up front. He said at about midnight, the Lord would go through Egypt, and every firstborn would die. Not just the firstborn from Egypt. Every firstborn, including those of Israel, including, including the cattle the Bible says. Every firstborn would die and everyone would know that the Lord had made a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That's what it says. But the distinction would, wouldn't be made just because those, those are the bad Egyptians and these are the good Israelites and that's the distinction I'm making. No, every firstborn would die. The distinction would be made because of the Passover lamb. The Lord provided, he provided specific instructions for the salvation of the people. Every household, take a year-old male lamb without blemish, a good lamb, 
perfect lamb, spotless. Don't break any of its bones. That's what it says. Sacrifice it. Take a bunch of hyssop, a little plant, like an herb, sort of strung together into a bunch, almost like a paintbrush at that point. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, touch the lintel and the doorposts of the door to your household, the top and the sides of the frame of the door. Touch it with the blood. Take the lamb, roast it, eat it, burn whatever whatever's left. Don't let it don't let it last. You burn it all, <clears throat> and stay inside the house. And the Lord would spare you and your household from the death of the firstborn from that plague. Those are the instructions. The Lord was coming. The firstborn would die, whether the firstborn of Egypt or of Israel, unless the lamb had been slain as a substitute. It was either the firstborn or this substitutionary sacrifice, the lamb, the Passover lamb. So if anyone was going to be spared the plague, the judgment, it would, it would be because of the Passover lamb, the substitutionary sacrifice. So Israel did what God had said, and they kept the Passover every year when they were supposed to, as a memorial, remembering how they'd been saved from God's wrath, ultimately. The wrath of God is what came through town that night, and everybody would have suffered it. But they were saved from their war with God. They were saved from God's wrath. They'd been set free from their captivity in Egypt. They'd been taken by God for his own people, all of it because of the Passover. You got to enjoy all of that because of the Passover. The Passover during the Exodus it was the big picture. It was the main image of salvation in the scriptures until the cross of Jesus Christ, until we get to our passage where we are this morning as we're going through John's gospel together. <clears throat> the Passover was the big picture of salvation, and it was pointing to this, what we've read this morning about Christ hanging on the cross. As big as import- and, and important uh, as the Passover was for so many people throughout history, The Passover was meant to point to something greater than itself in Jesus Christ. The Passover itself, slaying that lamb as a substitutionary sacrifice, was meant to point to Jesus. He's the true and ultimate Passover lamb. And it's his substitutionary sacrifice that means eternal salvation. Not just the establishing of a, a national identity but a people made up from every tribe and tongue and nation for God. The end of all of our war with God. That's, that's what this Passover means. John indicated this very early in his gospel. We saw it it's probably a couple of years ago now in chapter 1 when John the Baptist was, uh, he, he was there doing his ministry. He sees Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's upon his sacrifice that we were constituted as God's own people. We looked at that a little bit more in depth last week, that theme, when Jesus gave his family and his followers to one another in mutual belonging, meaning because of his relationship with God, his relationship with the people that are his disciples, he's bringing them together at his death on the cross. So he spoke the church into existence. He spoke it into existence, this group of people restored in their relationship with God 
He spoke it into existence, but it would be an empty pronouncement without his sacrificial death. And that's what we're finally coming to in our passage this morning. Because in order for the church to meet with God and survive, to survive God's presence, to survive God's judgment, Jesus would have to give himself as the sacrificial lamb. All of these events taking place during the Passover week, during the Passover feast in Jerusalem, God was coming in judgment and every household would be in ruins. doesn't matter who you are. When God comes in judgment, when God comes in wrath against sin, every household will be in ruins unless the lamb's been slain for you as a substitutionary sacrifice. That's the consequence of our rebellion against God. That's the consequence of our war with God that we've chosen because of our sins. When we ignore God, when we write him off, when we look to supplant him, that's a war we can't win. And the consequences of it are death under his wrath. But God has promised a way to end that war. God had, had promised that way, and in grace he provided it with his own firstborn son, his only begotten son, his only true son. And Peter, a little later when he's writing his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, he calls Jesus a lamb without blemish or spot. And he says that we're saved by his blood, like Israel was saved by their perfect lamb and his blood. We're saved by Jesus Christ in his blood. It's like in the instructions for the Passover. Hyssop is also mentioned in our passage. Actually, hyssop, the little plant dipped in blood, used as sort of like a paintbrush sometimes, it's dipped in blood. It's used several places in the Old Testament for purification, for sprinkling of sacrificial blood on God's people. That's kind of gross. Sprinkling blood on the people, sprinkling blood on the, the tent of meeting where people meet with God. Sprinkling blood on all the vessels that are used for worship in that place. Sprinkling blood on the book of the covenant that God is establishing with his people. Sprinkling blood, it's used in the, uh, this hyssop is used in the ritual cleansing of lepers. And one of the most famous psalms that we talk about frequently, Psalm 51, says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. So hyssop... It's this picture throughout the scriptures. Hyssop is this sort of a delivery instrument for purification. Hyssop is a delivery instrument for atonement, for the forgiveness of sins. And here hyssop is used at the very moment of our salvation. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. It's the most profound moment. Jesus has spoken the church into existence in his act as the king of love. Again, we looked at that last week. And now he sees his work as coming to an end. His work is culminating right here, right now. He isn't saying, my work here is done. Thirsty, let's go get some drinks. Let's quit now. It's quitting time. I've suffered enough. Let's go. I need, a, I need a drink. Or he's not, he's not saying, this is really hard. I need some relief. Maybe somebody could give me some Gatorade so I can replenish my electrolytes because I'm really, I'm dying here. He's, he's not just saying I'm thirsty in some physical sense. 
And he's not looking for relief. He's saying, now the time is ripe. Just this one thing left to do, and I'll be finished. It'll all be finished. He has to drink the cup that's given to him by his father. We've looked at that in John's gospel. He has to drink the sour cup of the, the wine of God's wrath. That's how it's put in the Old Testament. It's a cup that nobody wants to drink. He has to drink that cup. Someone's going to drink that cup. Someone's going to drink it. Just like during that original Passover in Israel, someone's going to die that night. God's wrath against everything that's wrong in this world is being poured out. And somebody's going to drink it. Either sinners will drink it for themselves to their eternal ruin, or the Son of God drinks it for us down to the dregs till not a drop remains. Either sinners suffer the righteous judgment of God for themselves, or there's a substitute who does it for them. So Jesus says, I thirst. Give me that cup. He doesn't beg off. He doesn't break under the pain. He's thirsty to drink the cup that his father gives him. He wants to fulfill his father's plan of salvation, even though that means his death under God's wrath. We don't even know what that means. Leslie Newbegin said, He will drink the cup the father has given him. Now he thirsts to drink it to the bottom terrible physical thirst of a man hanging on a cross in the fierce heat of the afternoon disappears into the thirst of the sun to complete the work for which he has come. He's eager to finish it. He's eager to complete his mission of love. He wants, above all, to give himself utterly to the Father on our behalf as our substitute. That's what he wants. He's thirsty. <clears throat> so if you ever wondered whether Jesus loved you, that question is answered right here once and for all. <clears throat> this is the fullness of love. It was going to be us or him. And he said, let it be me. I'll take the cup. I'm thirsty for it. He didn't hesitate to suffer for the forgiveness of your sins. He was thirsty to do it because of his relationship with the Father and there's no deeper love than that. He was looking at the Father when he said, I'm thirsty. <clears throat> so verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The sour wine is just a picture, right? It's a picture of God's wrath against sin. Who knows what the reality of that is? It's probably more like him opening his mouth to drink Niagara Falls full of killing poison. But it's a picture of God's wrath against sin, and it's applied to his mouth with hyssop. It's the delivery instrument for substitutionary atonement, for cleansing. And in that moment, he took what we had coming to us. God was coming for us in his wrath, and he stepped in and he took it to spare us, and at that same moment, he gave himself to God entirely, totally, utterly, on our behalf. All we have, all we are, 
comes from God. We wouldn't exist if it weren't for God. We wouldn't have anything if it weren't for God. We owe God our very lives, our existence, our everything, and yet not a single one of us has returned our whole lives to God in perfect devotion, perfect, pure, good, holy, with thanksgiving. Not one of us is a spotless lamb without blemish, except for Jesus, who poured out his life to God in love and obedience down to the very last drop of it as our substitute. It says in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. All that language is, is active language, it's voluntary. His death was voluntary. He wasn't fighting to hold on to dear life. He didn't just expire and slump over. He gave himself to God. He bowed his head first. That's an expression of his submission to the Father. He bowed his head, and then he returned his spirit, his life, to God. For our sake, as our representative, as our substitute. And so he finished our salvation. He finished it once and for all. There, it's, it's finished, he says. He made complete atonement for us. He saved us from our war with God once and for all. He set our humanity back right with God with finality. Once and for all, Jesus has done everything necessary to constitute you, broken, weak, sinful people, to constitute you as God's own people, to set you free and deliver you from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to fear, from your estrangement, from God to deliver you from the eternal ruination of God's wrath to bring you to the promised land where you dwell with God in a restored relationship that will last forever all is a gift of God's grace a very costly gift we see it at the cross this was the work that his father had given him to do and he finished it mission accomplished and we sing it See, his blood now marks our door. Faith points to it. Death passes over. So you know it's real. You know he wasn't just faking it, only appearing to suffer and die. That was was some kind of heretical belief that was sort of affecting the early church, and probably a lot of us are affected by doubts in this area anyway. Um, that, uh, that Jesus just appeared to be a real human, that Jesus appeared to be suffering, he appeared to die on the cross, but he didn't really... No, he really did. And just so you know that it's real, John records how the soldiers confirmed it. They confirmed his death. External observers. Not people who are friendly to the Christian interpretation of these events. Soldiers. The ones who had killed him. Confirm his death. So in order to expedite death by crucifixion, it could take days. Nobody wanted to see that during the the Sabbath, sort of like an unclean thing. You didn't want dead bodies hanging there on the Sabbath. And so the day before the Sabbath, in order to expedite the death by crucifixion, they'd break your legs with a sledgehammer pretty badly, badly enough that you couldn't push yourself up anymore as you're hanging there to take a breath because you're hanging there sort of, strangling yourself with your own weight. 
And you wouldn't be able to do that anymore if they broke your legs with a heavy mallet. <clears throat> so you'd die quickly from suffocation. They didn't need to do that with Jesus because he had already given his own life to God. They couldn't take it away because he gave it already. John goes on to mention how this also fulfills the scripture. In verse 36, he's quoting, he says, not one of his bones will be broken, which is another explicit link to the Passover lamb. God in Exodus 12 says, you shall not break any of its bones. Christ, our Passover, had already been sacrificed for us. According to God's own plan, according to God's instructions, according to God's promise, according to God's provision. But just to make sure, the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So he was dead. John was there. He saw it. He testifies to it. He says his testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. That's why he's writing these things down. Christ has died. It's one of the central articles of the Christian faith, along with his historical bodily resurrection from the dead, which would happen a few days later, and the promise of his future return. Those are the things that we hold as the center of our Christian faith. John says, you need to believe this. It's true I was there, and I want you to believe this. Without the death of Christ... There's no Christianity. Without the death of Christ, there's no church. There's no forgiveness of sins. Not in the whole world. No forgiveness of sins. Apart from the death of Christ, no relationship with God as our Father. There's no hope for anything apart from the death of Christ. In fact, we proclaim his death every week when we come to the table. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, in sort of the context of... uh, the regular observance of the Lord's Supper, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And implicit in that statement is the fact that, well, he's alive again, and he's going to come back. So we're proclaiming at least those three things every time we get together to, uh, to celebrate the table. So it's just like the Passover feast, but better. We celebrate our identity. We celebrate our freedom. Because of the Lamb of God, who's Jesus Christ. He's the perfect Son of God. And he's the perfect human being. And his sacrifice, it doesn't just make for a national day of independence, but for all the people of God everywhere throughout history, an international group of people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We're all citizens of heaven now. Heaven's our home. We've been delivered into that promised land. We're all citizens of heaven. We celebrate the holiday of Good Friday, that's like our day. That's like the church day, national day for for the church. His death means our life with God. So John says that the scriptures are fulfilled. He says it several times in our passage. This was all to fulfill God's promises about our salvation. They're all made good in Jesus' death on the cross. One of the scriptures he cites is in verse 37. He's talking about uh, what we see in Zechariah chapter 12 where there's this promise. He says, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn 
echoes of the Passover there. And then in Zechariah, a little bit later, he says, On that day, there should be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. A fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Cleansing blood flowed from his pierced side, and also life-giving water, pictured throughout the scriptures. Water is this, this life-giving, like the, like the rock that was struck in the desert, pouring forth its streams for those who thirst for eternal life. Pierced in the side. He's like Adam, like Adam whom God caused to fall into a deep sleep before opening up his side and removing a rib and making that the life of his bride. Jesus, he's the true bridegroom. He was made to sleep. This is the sleep of death before the life of his bride was brought forth from his side. For since by faith I saw the stream Thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. So look on him whom we have pierced and be saved from your war with God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that once and for all you have done it. You've, you've saved us from ourselves. You've saved us from your wrath, from the death that we deserve for our sin. You've saved us for yourself so we might know you as our loving Father in a relationship that never ends. All of this because you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for people like us. He died while we were enemies in order to take away our enmity, to to destroy our enmity in, in himself. We're thankful for that mediator, thankful for his sacrifice. We're not as thankful as we should be. We We pray that you would make us more thankful as we look at Christ by faith. We pray that you would help us to look on him whom uh, we have pierced and help us to weep as over the, the loss of a firstborn and yet to rejoice that he's made the way for us to live with you forever. And we pray that you would help us to proclaim as John the evangelist has proclaimed this. These things really happened. Jesus really did give his life. He loved us and he gave himself for us so that we would believe it. We pray that you'd help us to proclaim that to our friends and our neighbors who don't yet know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.